Good evening. The Supreme Court limits the EPA's authority to curb greenhouse emissions and backs Biden on a Trump-era plan to bar migrants as the newest justice is sworn in and NATO promises more military aid for Ukraine. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, June 30th, 2022. In a blow to the fight against climate change, the Supreme Court on Thursday limited how the nation's main anti-air pollution law can be used to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. By a 6-3 vote with conservatives in the majority, the court said the Clean Air Act does not give the Environmental Protection Agency broad authorities to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants that contribute to global warming. The decision said environmental advocates and dissenting liberal justices was a major step in the wrong direction, a gut punch, one prominent meteorologist said, at a time of increasing environmental damage attributable to climate change amid dire warnings about the future. President Joe Biden says he aims to cut the nation's greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of the decade and to have an emissions-free power sector by 2035. Power plants account for roughly 30 percent of carbon dioxide output. In the second case concerning migrants, the Supreme Court said today the Biden administration can scrap a Trump-era immigration policy to make asylum seekers wait in Mexico for hearings in U.S. immigration courts, a victory for a White House that still must address the growing number of people seeking refuge at America's southern border. The ruling will have little immediate impact because the policy has been seldom applied under President Joe Biden, who reinstated it under a court order in December. Under Trump, the program enrolled about 70,000 people after it was launched in 2019. Biden suspended the policy, formerly known as Migrant Protection Protocols, on his first day in office in January 2021. But lower courts ordered it reinstated in response to a lawsuit from Republican-led Texas and Missouri. In related news, the tractor trailer at the center of a human smuggling attempt that left 53 people dead had passed through an inland U.S. Border Patrol checkpoint with migrants inside the sweltering rig early in its journey. There were 73 people in the truck when it was discovered Monday in San Antonio, including the 53 who died. It was unclear if agents stopped the driver for questioning at the inland checkpoint or if the truck went through unimpeded. Also today, Omero Zamorano Jr., 45, the alleged driver of the tractor trailer, made his initial appearance in San Antonio Federal Court. The judge appointed a federal public defender for Zamorano as well as a second attorney since the smuggling charge he faces carries a possible death sentence. And in news of the war in Ukraine. Russian forces withdrew from the strategic Black Sea Island today, potentially easing the threat to the vital Ukrainian port city of Odessa, but kept up their push to encircle the last stronghold of resistance in the eastern province of Luhansk. The Kremlin portrayed the pullout from Snake Island as a goodwill gesture, but Ukraine's military claimed it forced the Russians to flee in two small speedboats following a barrage of Ukrainian artillery and missile strikes. The exact number of troops was not disclosed. Russian Defense Ministry spokesperson Lieutenant General Igor Konashenkov said the withdrawal was intended to demonstrate that Moscow isn't hampering United Nations efforts to establish a humanitarian corridor for exporting agricultural products from Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin commenting on a cruise missile strike during a press conference following the Caspian summit in Ashgabat yesterday. 
Я думаю, я не знаю, как они хотели раздеться до пояса, либо ниже пояса, но думаю, что это было бы отвратительное зрелище. In translation, Putin says, the Russian army does not strike any civilian targets. It's not necessary. We have every ability to determine the location of every target. And with long-range precision weapons, we achieve these goals. Putin added that he has seen footage filmed from drones with weapons and strike systems. He says there was no terrorist attack, no explosion, no one, just shells and hits the fields. The president stressed the head of state also noted that the final goal is the liberation of the Donbass, the protection of these people and the creation of conditions that guarantee Russian security. And that's a rough translation of what the president of Russia said during his speech yesterday. But during a news conference following the NATO summit in Madrid, Spain today, President Biden says the United States is sending a further $800 billion in military aid to Ukraine. You know, when the war will end, I hope it ends sooner than later. But for it to end, they have to be in a position where the, uh, the Ukrainians have all that they can reasonably expect, we can reasonably expect to get to them in order to provide for their physical security and their defenses. And so one does not relate to the other. They need it. We're going to be providing another... Well, I guess I'll announce it shortly, but another $800, billion, $800 million in aid for additional weaponry, including, um, you know, uh, including air defense system, as well as offensive weapons. I have a whole list I'll be happy to give to you, but that's the next tranche that's going to occur. And that's the president speaking earlier today about his plans to send another $800 million to Ukraine in weapons. Huddling with the leaders of Group of Seven Advanced Economies in the Bavarian Alps and with NATO allies in Madrid, Biden was greeted warmly by colleagues and notched significant policy accomplishments on modernizing the transatlantic alliance to adapt to new threats, as the United States is calling them from Russia and China. In more international news, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the namesake son of an ousted dictator, praised his father's legacy and glassed over its violent past as he was sworn in as Philippine president today after a stunning election victory that opponents say was pulled off by whitewashing his family's image. This is a tape of uh, Marcos being uh, sworn in, followed by some comments from Renato Reyes, the executive director of an organization that rep represents Filipino people in that city, in that country. Ferdinand Romualdez Marcos Jr. I believe that if we but focus on the work at hand and the work that will come to hand, we will go very far under This regime should focus, history, this regime should focus on revising the policies left by Rodrigo Duterte. That is what the people demand right now. And that was Renato Reyes at the end. You've heard him here on this news program. Uh, we have been following closely events in the Philippines, a very important country in that part of the world and a former colony of the United States. Marcos's rise to power comes 36 years after an army-backed people power revolt booted his father from office and into global infamy. But in his inaugural speech, Marcos Jr. defended the legacy of his late father, who he said accomplished many things that had not been done since the country's independence. He got it done, sometimes with the needed support, sometimes without. 
So will it be with his son. Marcos Jr. said to applause from his supporters in the crowd, you'll get no excuses from me. And here in the United States, Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn in to the Supreme Court today, shattering a glass ceiling as the first black woman on the nation's highest court. The 51-year-old Jackson is the court's 116th justice, and she took the place of the justice she once worked for. Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement was effective at noon. Moments later, joined by her family, Jackson recited the two oaths required of Supreme Court justices, one administered by Breyer and the other by Chief Justice John Roberts. We'll listen to the first. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Ketanji Brown Jackson, do solemnly swear. I, Ketanji Brown Jackson, do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. And that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Katanji Brown-Jackson. In related news, days after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states can prohibit abortion, Alabama has seized on the decision to argue the state should also be able to ban gender-affirming medical treatments for transgender youths. The case marks one of the first known instances in which a conservative state has tried to apply the abortion ruling to other realms, just as LGBTQ advocates and others were afraid would happen. Critics have expressed fear that the legal reasoning behind the high court ruling could lead to a rollback of decisions involving such matters as gay marriage, birth control, and parental rights. The state is asking a federal appeals court to lift an injunction and let it enforce an Alabama law that would make it a felony to give puberty blockers or hormones to transgender minors to help affirm their gender identity. In its historic ruling last Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court said terminating a pregnancy is not a fundamental constitutional right because abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution and is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Meanwhile, in Madrid, international affairs was overshadowed at a news conference uh, by comments by President Biden supporting changing the filibuster rules to codify abortion rights in response to the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. The foremost thing we should do is make it clear how outrageous this decision was and how much it impacts not just on women's right to choose, which is a critical, critical piece, but on privacy generally, on privacy generally. And so uh, I'm going to be talking to uh, to the governors as to what actions they think I should be taking as well. And, uh, but the most important thing to be clear about is we have to change, I believe we have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law. And the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be, we provide an exception for this, for the except the require an exception to the filibuster for this action to deal with the Supreme Court decision. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, you just made some news saying you would support changing the filibuster rules to codify abortion rights broadly across the country. 
right to privacy, not just abortion rights, but yes, abortion rights. Can you describe for us, sir, many Americans are grappling with this. What is your sense today about the integrity and the impartiality of the Supreme Court? Should Americans have confidence in the court as an institution? And your views on abortion have evolved in your public life. Are you the best messenger to carry this forward when Democrats, many of them, many progressives, want you to do more? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm the President of the United States of America. That makes me the best messenger. And uh, I really think that it's a serious, serious problem that the court has thrust upon the United States, not just in terms of the right to choose, but in terms of the right to who you can marry, the right, a whole range of issues relating to, to privacy. President Biden in Madrid, the term filibuster refers to the 60 seat supermajority needed for most legislation to pass the Senate without being blocked by any single senator. The rule is meant to help the Senate act as a less volatile chamber than the House, which works on simple majority votes and to protect the rights of the minority. But many on the left charge Republicans and some centrist Democrats with using the rule more in the archaic Spanish derived sense of the word filibuster as pirates or raiders ransacking, ransacking the political process to their own advantage. Biden was a senator from 1973 until 2009. He's been reluctant to support changes to the filibuster, even carve outs for key legislation. And Republican Representative Liz Cheney spoke at the Reagan Library yesterday. She said Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. That was during remarks at the state of the, on the state of the Republican Party at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California. Representative Cheney, who's vice chair of the January 6th committee, went on to talk more about former President Trump's alleged role in trying to overturn the 2020 election in, on January 6th. She had this to say. Now, some in my party are embracing former President Trump. And even after all we've seen, they're enabling his lies. Many others are urging that we not confront Donald Trump, that we look away. And that is certainly the easier path. One need only look at the threats that are facing the witnesses who've, become, who've come before the January 6th committee to understand the nature and the magnitude of that threat. But to argue that the threat posed by Donald Trump can be ignored is to cast aside the responsibility that every citizen, every one of us bears to perpetuate the republic. We must not do that and we cannot do that. As the full picture is coming into view with the January 6th committee, it has become clear that the efforts Donald Trump oversaw and engaged in were even more chilling and more threatening than we could have imagined. As we have shown, Donald Trump attempted to overturn the presidential election. He attempted to stay in office and to prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power. He summoned a mob to Washington. He knew they were armed on January 6th. He knew they were angry. And he directed the violent mob to march on the Capitol in order to delay or prevent completely the counting of electoral votes. He attempted to go there with them. And when the violence was underway, he refused to take action to tell the rioters to leave. Instead, he incited further violence by tweeting that the vice president, Mike Pence, was a coward. He said, quote, Mike deserves it. 
and he didn't want to do anything in response to the hang Mike Pence chants. It's undeniable that Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. Republican Representative of Wyoming, Liz Cheney. Cheney also praised the witnesses who have testified before the committee and talked about the value of working with Democrats to defend constitutional principles. And Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in prison for conspiring with Jeffrey Epstein to sexually abuse minors on Tuesday. Her lawyers have stated they will appeal the sentence. Marlon Edinger covered the Maxwell trial and wrote several pieces for his substack, including Prince Andrew Settles. He says most of the story of wealthy pedophiles and their enablers may well never be known. Epstein and Maxwell are now put away either dead or put away. He had a collaborator in France, too, called Jean-Luc Brunel, who died in prison in February. All the loose ends are sort of tied up in this case, in a sense. It's good that Maxwell is in prison. Some people might say 20 years isn't enough. She could serve as little as 17 years with good behavior. There's a lot more to the case, and it seems done in the courts. There could be a few people targeted who are uh, co-conspirators, but the way that they present, that they built the Maxwell case makes it unlikely that the sort of revelations that a lot of people are hoping for would come out, even if other people were prosecuted. This is like QAnon. I mean, was was QAnon right? But it's just not. It's just not one group of people that everybody's doing it. I mean, is some? The implication of what you're saying is is devastating. Yeah, I don't even think it's a QAnon story. I think QAnon sort of obscures the truth more than it reveals because it spins a political narrative in one way. But I don't even think it's a celebrity case. So there were powerful people involved in it. Most of the victims are completely anonymous. And all the people who were involved may have been powerful people, but not powerful people that the average person knows about. Were they possibly part of a larger conspiracy involving other criminal activities, and this is just how somebody got back at them? I don't know if we'll ever know, get it confirmed as a smoking gun document. There's a lot of evidence the activity might have been filmed. They were in this house in Palm Beach before the police raided it. Not this arrest, but the first arrest. The hard drives for all the cameras, which were installed in each room, had been gotten rid of. Maria Farmer, a survivor of his, said that he had a surveillance bank in his New York townhouse with cameras on almost every room. When they initially arrested Epstein in 2019, supposedly the NYPD carted away all these files with names on them. I haven't heard word of that since. Even at the Maxwell trial, one of the FBI agents who participated in the raid said that they had found all these hard drives and even CDs with names on them. Very few of those photos that came out at the trial, and they were mostly anodyne out of tens of thousands. You know, maybe 40 came out over the contents of which were discussed. Was this a blackmail operation? That's one of the theories. I have no smoking gun. They have some associations. There's a lot of smoke who Maxwell was and who Epstein was and who they associated with. Maxwell's father, of course, Robert Maxwell, was long suspected of being an intelligence asset. Epstein had links with some of these people like Les Wexner, billionaire who made his fortune in Victoria's Secret, had the same sort of intelligence connections. I don't think we'll ever get a smoking gun on that, though. What do we learn from this? What does society take from this, if anything? You said it doesn't play into Me Too, really. What does it play into? It's this idea that Maxwell and Epstein have been committing these crimes for decades, and they got away with it for decades. They were not prosecuted for decades. Many of their conspirators still aren't prosecuted, 
even despite some people, especially the victims, of course, being happy that Maxwell was put away, though not all completely, there's so many people who have got away with it. And you sort of seem to think, or I, I won't put words in the listener's mouth, but I seem to think that Maxwell was sort of not scapegoated because she, she deserves the punishment she's been given, and maybe even more, but just sort of put as the one who held all the responsibility when there are many more people responsible the most powerful people and the richest people in society, they get away with anything because they're rich. These are people that were friends with two of the last four presidents in the United States. They're friendly with some of the most powerful politicians in the world, in France and in Britain. People like that do get away with things for a very long time. You might say, well, they didn't get away with it, but a lot of people still have, and it took them a very long time to ever get any sort of reckoning. Just this sort of idea of the justice system being something that gives us the the illusion of justice. We process a few people through it to try to make the point that there is equality before everyone before the law, but the reality is, like you mentioned, you know, some people are getting much longer sentences or don't have as good lawyers as someone like Maxwell did for much lesser crimes. Now they can point to it and say, well, look, we justice was served. Marlon, editors, reporter who's been following the Maxwell trial, he wrote several pieces for his Substack, including the recent Prince Andrew Settles. New York Magazine just published the piece How Leslie Wexner Helped Create Jeffrey Epstein about how the billionaire Wexner, whose company at one point owned Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie & Fitch, Express, and Bath and & Body Works, funded Epstein. Epstein's money, Upper East Side Mansion, and even the Lolita Express, originally a Boeing 727 owned by L Brands, the company that Wexner used to hold all these other properties, would all come from Wexner. And here in New York City, the Justice Department opened an investigation into the New York Police Department's Special Victims Division today over its handling of sexual assault cases. According to a press release, the department said that it received information alleging the division has, over the course of more than a decade, failed to conduct basic investigative steps and shamed and abused survivors re-traumatizing them during investigations. The probe is focused on whether the division engages in a pattern of gender-biased policing. Mayor Eric Adams, NYPD Commissioner Keechan Sewell, and New York City Corporation Counsel Sylvia Hines-Roddix say they will cooperate with the investigation. The mayor spoke earlier today. Important to respond to the Department of Justice investigation on the sex crime unit in the New York City Police Department. Uh, you know, there's no higher level of priority for us uh, to ensure that victims of sexual assault receive the right treatment, investigation, and resolution. And we're looking forward uh, to partner with the Department of Investigation to fully cooperate with it. Uh, we were not sitting on our hands. Uh, the police commissioner immediately started taking actions uh, towards what we perceived as how to make that make sure that unit is a professional uh, unit. And that's the mayor. NYPD released the results of an independent review into the department's investigation of sexual assault cases in May. Around the same time, Sewell appointed a new commanding officer at the Special Victims Division. Sewell said in a statement, I believe any constructive review of our practices in the Special Victims Division will show that the NYPD has been evolving and improving in the area. But we will be transparent and open to criticism as well as ideas in the process. You might know uh, the Special Victims Unit. Uh, Special Victims Unit, I think it's the name of the program, the police program on uh, television that you might see every once in a while, Law and Order.
And finally, New York City is rolling out what it calls the first mobile COVID test to treat program. Starting today, some mobile testing units will have a clinician on board. Mayor Adams. Mobile testing unit is the first of its kind. You know, how many times did I say that, Michael? First of its kind. You know, once again, uh, this is going to deal with equity because we talked about the equity issue. Dr. Fassan has leaned into the equity issue so much. And when you are mobile, you can pinpoint the areas that need uh, the support immediately. And we can get this unit out to those areas. And that's why we're really oppressed by that. We are now leading the way again by having this mobile unit. If a person's COVID test comes back positive, the clinician will determine eligibility for the antiviral drug Paxlovid. If eligible, the clinician will either give the medication immediately or write a prescription to be filled at a partnering pharmacy within minutes. And that's some of the news for Thursday, June 30th, 2022. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.